Well, this is a time that we get to look into the Word of God together. So I want to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you're using a pew Bible there in front of you, it's on page 138, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 19 is what we'll be looking at today. And the title of the message that I want to bring to you this morning is The Resurrection, No Hope Without It. I want us to read our text together right away so that we can spend most of our time there. As uh, one of the old country songs used to say, we've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. So we're going to try to do that through 19 verses today. But uh, my prayer this morning is that as we look into God's Word this morning, we're going to know the significance of the resurrection and come to a greater adoration for God Himself as a result of that understanding. Lord willing, we're going to try to do that. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. I want to invite you to stand, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's Word. God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word says this, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that He appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some had fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is preached that he has been risen from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, We are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if we have hoped in Christ in this life only... We are of all men most to be pitied. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We pray this morning, Lord, that you would speak through a mere man. That you would give words of comfort and strength and correction to your people. Father, we just want to lift high the name of Jesus Christ, and we pray that that would be accomplished this day through us to your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
You may be seated. <clears throat> if you were to survey the major religions of the world, you would find that four of them, the largest of them all, are based primarily on their founders. Those major religions being that of Judaism, Buddhism, Islam, and Christianity. And all four of those founders died. Abraham died around 2000 BC and he was buried in Hebron. Buddha died in the 5th or 6th century, with tradition saying that he died at the age of 80 and then was cremated. Muhammad died June 8th in 632 AD, and his body is buried in Medina, Saudi Arabia, where millions visit his grave each year on their pilgrimage to Mecca. Jesus died in the year A.D. 30 or 33 and was buried in a borrowed tomb just outside Jerusalem. They all died. But Christianity is unique amongst them all in that it and it alone boasts of an empty tomb. Christianity is the only religion whose adherents go to the burial site of its leader only to confirm that his body is not there. There are no skeletons in the Lord's burial closet because Jesus is alive and well today. Only the Christian faith claims that its founder was raised powerfully, physically, and eternally from the dead. And so one of those linchpins for the Christian faith is that of the resurrection. Because if there is no resurrection, there is no hope of salvation for you and I. There simply is no Christianity. In other words, the resurrection is like the keystone above an arched doorway. Because if you remove it, Christianity will collapse into a pile of rubble. In fact, I would say that it is one of the the pinnacles of all of Scripture, and that if you would try to take it away, you would take away all hope of your redemption, all hope of your salvation, uh, all the power to live a godly life, and you would fundamentally even lose all hope in the gospel itself. It is that important. The church and the Bible and church history have always understood this. All four gospel writers chronicle the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul, Peter, John, the author of Hebrews in chapter 13, all write of the resurrection. Daniel, Isaiah, David, and Job all speak of the resurrection in one form or another. Even if we would go back to the early church fathers, such as Polycarp, who was martyred at the ripe old age of 86, and who was a disciple of John, urged Christians to believe in God, and he said, quote, "...who raised our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead and gave Him glory at the right hand of the throne." The early church fathers, such as Tertullian, Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, all wrote in defense of and in affirmation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Historically, the church as a whole has underscored the necessity and the importance of the resurrection that they sought to submit it into the earliest creeds and confessions of the Christian faith. Creeds written to defend against false teaching, confessions written to affirm right teachings, but, for example, the Apostles' Creed, in which there are, was, was written right around the 1st or 2nd century. And there's 
both the resurrection of our Lord and the affirmation of the resurrection of the believer spelled out within it. There are a couple variations, but it goes like this. I believe in God Almighty and in Christ Jesus, his only Son, our Lord, who was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate and was buried, and the third day rose from the dead, who ascended to heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father, whence he cometh to judge the living and the dead, and in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the remission of sins, the resurrection of the flesh, the life everlasting. The First Church Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., which generated the Nicene Creed, which is a bit more lengthy than the Apostles' Creed, again, emphasizes the resurrection of our Lord and the future resurrection of the believer when it says, The third day he rose again according to the Scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And it closes by saying, We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life in the world to come. Amen. The Athanasian Creed of 500 A.D. again affirms the same thing. The Heidelberg Catechism of 1563 in question number 45 says this, How does the resurrection benefit us? Answer, first, by his resurrection he has overcome death, so that he might make a share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power we too are already raised to a new life, And third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us, to our blessed resurrection. Westminster Confession of Faith in 1646 says the same thing. Even the great reformer Martin Luther said this, The greatest importance attaches to this article of the faith. For if there were no resurrection, we would have neither comfort, no hope, and all that Christ has done would be in vain. End quote. John Calvin went so far as to say that the resurrection of Christ is the most important article of our faith. It is the chief point of the gospel, the main article of religion. B.B. Warfield wrote that Christ himself deliberately staked his entire claim upon his resurrection. When asked for a sign, he pointed to this sign as a single and sufficient credential that sign being the sign of Jonah. There has unequivocally been an overwhelming conviction of the church historically and the Bible explicitly that Jesus Christ rose on the third day following his crucifixion and that there will also be a bodily resurrection of his people. No article of our faith is more essential and no passage of Scripture more clearly articulates its importance to the Christian faith than the one we have before us in 1 Corinthians 15. Because Paul wrote this chapter in order to correct what he had been hearing about the Corinthian church. Because he wrote in verse 12 of chapter 15, he said, How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Tragically, as often happens within the church, secular thinking, secular methodologies started to creep into the church. And such is the case here where Greek mythology and Hellenistic dualism found its way into the church of Corinth. Hellenistic dualism taught that the body was bad, but the spirit was good, and they just needed to disentangle themselves from one another. 
Paul had heard that there were some who denied that the bodies of believers would be raised and that believers would die who uh, would only exist forever as a spirit. And that's the false teaching that, that Paul is correcting here in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, the first section of this chapter is, is it merely an introduction as to what Paul wants to address. And then he'll go on to remind them that the doctor, doctrine of the resurrection is a central tenet of the faith. So look in your text, first of all, with me in verses 1 and 2. He says this, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So the gospel that he and the apostles preached in the past that the Corinthians had received is the gospel that they must continue in in the future in order to be saved. So then he summarizes his gospel in verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So stop right there for a second. This is the gospel message that Paul delivered to them for nearly 18 months as he ministered to them, as is recorded in Acts chapter 18. And Paul says very explicitly here that he did not invent this message. He received it. It did not come from the mind of men. It came from the mind of God. He said this in Galatians 1, 11 and 12. He said, For I would have to know you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me was not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a direct revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul wants us to understand that the gospel that he is about to summarize is not his gospel. It was the gospel that was taught directly to him by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so, that means that this message is of utmost importance. This is primary. This is central. There's no fluff, no filler. This is the rock-bottom message of the gospel that was given to me from the Lord Jesus himself, that you need to know. So then in verse 3 through 11, he summarizes it. And it's interesting to note that this passage is a fragment of an early church confession, and many historians believe it to be true, because I want you to look at what it says. In verse 3, he said, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles, and then last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove in vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. And so we can see there that Paul reduces the gospel, the core message of the Christian faith, that he preached, with the, which the Lord himself gave to him, to four bedrock propositions. Now you can see this very clearly in your text there when you see this word, that. That is a subordinating conjunction, and they come in rapid 
fire succession. In other words, it says, I delivered these truths to you that Christ died for our sins according to our scriptures in verse 3, that he was buried in verse 4, that he was raised according to the scriptures again in verse 4, and that he appeared to Cephas in the 12 and so on and so on in 5 through 8. And so all four of those propositions stand at the very core of the gospel. Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ was raised, and Christ appeared, all capture the heart and soul of the gospel. And so first, we see that Christ died, the substitutionary death of Christ. Because of His holiness and His justice, God cannot allow sin to go unpunished. But in the marvelous transaction of justification, the Father, driven by His great love and His wonderful grace, would credit to Christ the guilt of every sin of every person who would repent and believe in faith, and then in turn, credit the righteousness of Christ to your account. Every wicked and sinful thought that has ever crossed your mind. Every ungodly attitude you have ever displayed. Every sinful word that has, you have allowed to roll off your tongue. Every sinful act that you have ever committed, God knew them all, and they all demanded punishment. But, in His marvelous and wonderful grace, the Father credited every one, every single one of your sins to the broad shoulders of Jesus Christ. And then He poured out His wrath that those sins deserved on His own dear beloved Son on the cross so that divine justice would be met. I'm not sure whoever said it, but the wrath of God and the love of God kissed each other at the cross of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 2.24 says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He took the very worst of us, and we get the very best of him. And so the idea of this Messiah dying wasn't something that Paul concocted or invented because it says in verse 3, it was according to the Hebrew Scriptures. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 and what is known as the Proto-Euangelion or the first gospel. There God told the serpent that a unique human male would come into the world, would ultimately deal with sin, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, And he would be the one who would conquer Satan, conquer sin, conquer the grave, and would enable God to spiritually bless sinners who deserved only wrath by bearing their punishment for them. Even 700 years before the Lord would be born, Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53.10 that Christ would be the one who would be the servant of the Father and will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. The second core tenet that we see in verse 4 is that Christ was buried. All four Gospels refer to the burial of Jesus Christ. They describe how His body was taken down from the cross on Friday, 
before sunset, and how two men, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, prepared his body for burial. They wrapped him in strips of cloth, interwove aromatic spices in between the layers, and they placed his body in a new tomb carved out of stone. Once they placed that body inside, they rolled a large circular stone over the entrance in which the Gospels tell us that four female witnesses watched the entire burial. Now, why is this so important? Because it is proof that Jesus actually died. A Roman soldier guaranteed his death by piercing him in the side with his spear, and then a centurion certified the death to Pilate. In fact, in John chapter 19, the Jews, they came to Pilate, and they asked that the legs of Jesus might be broken in order to sort of expedite his death so that he wouldn't be hanging there on the Sabbath. And a Roman soldier came, and he broke the legs of the first one. And if you know how much force it takes to break a leg, it's a lot of force. He broke the legs of the first thief on the cross. But then in John 19, 33, it says, But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But then his burial is also evidence of his resurrection. Because one of the primary evidences that convinced the disciples that Jesus has risen from the dead was the empty tomb. And their confidence in the empty tomb was based on the eyewitness testimony of his burial and knowing the exact location of his tomb. There was the testimony of the two members of the Jewish Sanhedrin. There was four women and the Roman guard placed there to guard it, all confirming the fact that Jesus was indeed buried there. Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture, and he was buried. The next and third core tenet of the faith was that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. All four gospels find their apex or their high point in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you were to examine the sermons of the early church, you would find that the resurrection is at the heart of them all. There were no sermons on five ways to improve your marriage. There were no sermons on how you can have your best life now. There was no six-week sermon on the Daniel diet plan. There was no sermon as to what God had to say to us from the latest movie that is in the theaters. What captivated the mind And the attention and the preaching of the early church was this Savior. This Savior who had the power of an indestructible life. This risen Lord to which every knee will bow. This intercessor, this high priest who is an advocate for you right now in heaven pleading before the Father for you. This king who lives forever and will let no one ever snatch you out of his hand. The elder brother, the friend, the champion who delights in giving you the kingdom. This mighty one who has endured the full curse of the law and who was born to take our guilt and take the sentence of guilty away from us. This resurrected and exalted Christ is what dominated the preaching of the early church. And shame on the church today for what they say is the preaching of the gospel. This is what captivated them. Christ, Peter's first sermon in Acts 2, 23 and 24 says this, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, 
You nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. He goes on in verse 29, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath, to seat one of his descendants on the throne, he looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Jesus Christ captivated the church and it needs to captivate the church today. God raised Jesus up from the grave. He gave him a new glorified body that would never be subject to human weakness, illness, or death again. Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried and he was raised. The fourth proposition is that he appeared to many eyewitnesses. God chose to establish the historic reality of the resurrection through as many as 14 different post-resurrection appearances. He appeared to more than 500 people at different times in at least 10 different locations. He appeared to individuals. He appeared to groups of disciples. He appeared to crowds numbering 500. He appeared to men. He appeared to women. He appeared in public and at different, in private and different times of the day. He appeared in Jerusalem and in Galilee. And in verses 5 through 8, Paul records for us six of those 14 or so appearances of a resurrected Jesus Christ. And this tells us that the good news that we embrace is not some sort of blind leap of faith. Our faith is not built on some blind hope or wishful thinking. The Christian faith is not based upon something despite of the facts against it, but just the opposite. It's based upon the assurance and the confidence in light of all the overwhelming evidence. Hebrews 11.1 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Assurance and conviction are not the language of once upon a time. It is not the language of let's take a leap of faith. It is not a holy hoping for the best. But rather, faith is the bedrock confidence the assurance in the facts of the gospel, and the assurance of the faithfulness of our God. It's knowing deep down in your bones that what God has revealed to us in His Word is absolutely true, and He is eternally faithful. Faith is not merely believing in God. It is believing God. It's, not, it's based on the uh, Old Testament scriptures. It's based on the written record of the apostles and all the people who handed down the New Testament. It's God speaking to us in these last days through His Son, as Hebrews 1 tells us, and it relies on the testimony of more than 500 believers who saw a resurrected Christ. This is the core of the gospel message. Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ was raised. And Christ appeared. But then in verse 12, Paul gets to his primary concern, and he wants to show the Corinthians the consequences of denying the resurrection. He says in verse 12, 
Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? This is the consequences of your belief and your conviction if you say there is no resurrection from the dead. He gives us six reasons in this staccato-like fashion to show that all would be disastrous for them and for us as Christians if the resurrection of Jesus had not occurred. I'm going to give them to you in pretty rapid-fire succession here. Number one, preaching the gospel would be futile in verse 14. Number two, our faith as Christians would be in vain in verse 14 again. Anyone who talks about Christ and the resurrection would misrepresent God in verse 15. Four, we would be still in our sins in verse 17. Five, our loved ones who died before us who have perished would perish forever verse 18. If all we have is hope, we of all men are the most to be pitied in verse 19. But since Christ has been raised from the dead, I want to look at them in reverse and say that the opposite of these six items are true, and thus they are all precious promises and benefits for us as believers. So number one, the gospel that you hear preached to you is actually effective, it's profitable, and it's worthwhile. Paul laid the argument out very clearly and thoroughly in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 when he said this, And when I came to you, brethren... I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God." He didn't use smoke and mirrors. He didn't use gimmicks and giveaways. He didn't use drama, light shows. He simply preached the gospel because it was of an eternal spiritual benefit for the people. The preaching of the gospel actually did something in the lives of believers. It was powerful and it was necessary for the conversion of unbelievers. And beloved... We not only need to hear the gospel when we first come to faith. We need to hear the gospel again and again and again and again. Let me ask you, have you ever had a lingering sense of guilt for your past sins? Have you ever had thoughts deep down inside that rear up and they tempt you to believe that God could never like or use the likes of you? Have you ever felt like God is punishing you for your foolishness? And that He's just like a a constantly angry Father, keeping you down, withholding His love because you're still just a sinner. And because you struggle with this sin or that sin, and so God is just sitting up there in heaven, and He's withholding good things from you. Listen, Jesus Christ died not only to take the wrath of God for you, which we would call propitiation, but Christ has removed the sentence of guilt from you, which we would call expiation. It's like two sides of the same coin. In other words, Christ has completely removed any guilt that could possibly come from any past sins. 
God would never punish you for something in your past because if Christ has truly removed our guilt on the cross, God would be unjust to punish you again for something that Christ has removed. God would never try and condemn you with the law, once again, that Jesus has declared that you are not guilty. There is no such thing as divine double jeopardy. Once the Son has set you free from guilt, you are free indeed. And that's where the gospel comes in. You preach it to yourself when your feelings start to condemn you. You preach it to yourself when you wake up in the morning and you feel unworthy. You remind yourself of it when you lie down at night. You hammer those false feelings down when they try to accuse you. And you say to them from Psalm 43, 5, which says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? It's like a inner dialogue, right? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God. And I shall again praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. You annihilate those false feelings and say to them from Romans chapter 8, If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring charge against God's elect? That's you! God is the one who justifies. Who is the one that condemns? Jesus Christ who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who? It's asking who will separate you from the love of Christ. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? It says, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. When those false feelings of inadequacy come up, you say, my adequacy is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. On my own, I am undone. I am not worthy of anything. But I'm not on my own because I have Christ, but more importantly, Jesus Christ has me. He's got me in his grip. He will never let me go. You preach the gospel to yourself because it is profitable to your soul. Second thing, our faith as Christians is actually fruitful and it's valuable. In other words, because of the resurrection, our faith and our confidence in God is made all the more sure. It's not in vain. Otherwise, all of your obedience, all of your self-denial, all of your sacrifice would be a complete waste of time. Number three, anyone who talks about Christ and the resurrection is speaking the truth of God. The gospel, the good news, couldn't actually be good news if the resurrection wasn't true. And what the apostles preached and taught was, was, wasn't some sort of contrived story or a fantasy, but what they actually taught was true. Otherwise, Satan is won and God is lost if Christ has not been raised. But Paul is saying here they are not false witnesses of God because they actually proclaim the truth of God. For we are indeed no longer in our sins. Romans 6, 22 and 23 says, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. We've talked about this before, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the vindication and the validation that the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, and that if you put all of your faith and all of your confidence in Him, you receive Him as Lord and Savior, all of your sins will never, ever, ever be held against you again in the sight of God. He separated them as far as the east is from the west. He has cast them into the sea of forgetfulness, and God never goes fishing again. Number five, our loved ones who've died before us in Christ have a hope and a future resurrected and glorified body in verse 18. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 and 17 says this, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Number six, we can have confidence in the resurrection. We can have assurance of things yet to come despite our sufferings and trials here. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into His grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations bring perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint. There's no disappointments in heaven. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. These are some of the benefits and the precious promises that we obtain because Jesus has been resurrected. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Literally, the Greek there says, we shall be saved in His life. It is our connection to Jesus Christ, our union to the resurrected Christ that guarantees all the blessing that He has secured will be ours. Beloved, this is the gospel. This is good news. This is great news for us. But if you're here this morning, you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to give you the call at this very moment on behalf of the King who has sent me as an ambassador to send out the glad tidings and the good news that God will save sinners into His kingdom. God has thrown open the gates of paradise and the Savior is standing at the gateway calling to you saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says in John 7, 37 and 38, If anyone is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Have you come to Jesus Christ by faith? Then come to Christ today. The gospel is more than just an invitation. He is commanding you today to step out of the shadows of the darkness of your unbelief and enter into the light of His grace and His mercy, and He will receive you. You don't clean up your life and then come to Christ. You see that you are a sinner, you repent of your sins, and you cling and you flee to Jesus Christ. 
He has not come for those who are well. He is a physician who has come for those who are sick. He has not come for the righteous. He has come for the unrighteous. He has come for those who are just like you. If you will come to Christ, He will gladly receive you. Come to Him in humility and in submission and saving faith, and He will gather you into His arms, and He will never let you go. Christ died. Christ was buried. Christ was raised, and Christ appeared, and Christ will one day come again to receive us unto Himself in the resurrection. I want to close with a benediction that's found in Hebrews 13.20. At the end of the book of Hebrews that someday we will be looking at. Hebrews 13.20 says this as a benediction. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we just thank You for a resurrected, living, and exalted Savior, one who is interceding in our behalf, whoever forever lives to make intercession for us. Father, we just want to praise You and give You all the honor and the glory and the praise for all that You have accomplished on our behalf and for the praise and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.